right, well, here we go. Yes. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. You guys ready? Thanks. All right. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, uh, very happy to have the third of our um, uh, neurologists present today for our mini fellowships. Um, Dr. Wallach will be introducing. Our code today is 96VM. We don't have a live mic in this room, so if you can't hear Dr. Morse, just tell him to speak up a little bit. But he assures me he can shout. Um, please don't forget, next week we have Dr. Steve Ringer, who's going to be our annual pediatric bioethics speaker. Um, he will be doing both a noon conference for the residents as well as grand rounds, which should be a lot of fun for everybody. And then the following week in April, we head back to our residents again, and Dr. Kamal Sati will be presenting about physician turnout, which should be something that touches all of us, I think, a little bit. So with that, Dr. Wallach will present Dr. Morse. It is my uh, great pleasure to introduce my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Richard Morse. Uh, I was 78 graduate of Dartmouth College, and then he followed that up by graduating from Dartmouth Medical School in 87, picking up a master's in Slavic languages at Yale in between. He then went off to San Antonio, Texas, where he fulfilled a uh, military obligation with the Air Force, only to return to uh, Duke in North Carolina, where he did a fellowship in clinical neurophysiology and served on the faculty. Uh, since then, he's been uh, here at Dartmouth and uh, has been a mainstay of the uh, section. He's authored 32 articles, four chapters, 34 abstracts, and has participated in, in at least 25 drug trials and research projects. And with that, he's going to talk to us today about hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and therapeutic hypothermia. Hey, Pothar. Thank you. Hey, um, Thank you very much. Um, and I want to say at the outset that I owe a lot of my being here to Dr. Norgren, who's joined us today, which is wonderful. Some of you younger folks in the crowd may not know who he is, but he was the first pediatric neurologist to hit the woods of New Hampshire. And he built a program that has continued to be well-regarded and uh, highly esteemed throughout the state and upper New northern New England. So I'm glad to see him here. Um, so I'm going to share with you today a bit about some work that started in 2008 when Bill Edwards, the then head of the intensive care nursery, um, called together a group to talk about this newfangled approach to babies with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy called therapeutic hypothermia. And at the time, it had just been a few studies had been published that suggested it was a very good neuroprotective mechanism for helping children with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So we sort of met and talked about how to approach it, um, talked about whether to use amplitude-integrated EEG, which is a strip of four electrodes, versus the full array, how long to use EEG, how to manage the babies neurologically, um, was certainly my input. And out of it came a protocol that really mimicked the ICE study, which I'll go through in a bit. And we've done it ever since. So I'm going to report to you today. Um, oh, I have no disclosures. Uh, I do investigate some medications for children with epilepsy. Um, so anyway, I'm going to talk today about this journey, this process of treating babies. And I want to say that at the outset, my goal is to have us look at our experience and then revisit the protocol and who it should be used on. And, who it should be applied to, 
by reviewing who benefits from this intervention and who may not benefit and who may not need it. Um, so before we get started, it would be nice to have a little quiz. True or false, cooling infants has decreased mortality in HIE by more than 50%. And you can write your answers down or hold on to them. True or false, cooling has been shown to be effective only if instituted before six hours of onset of encephalopathy. Cooling to 35 degrees centigrade is equally effective as to 30 degrees. Cooling longer than 72 hours may be deleterious to the infant. The EG is highly predictive of outcome, neurodevelopmental neurologic outcome, at 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, or equally on all days of monitoring during cooling. Most cooling studies have used early, first two days of life, MRI versus late MRI, which is more than seven days out. So you can jot down your answers if you want to, and we'll return to it at the end. So just to, again, visit the overview, I'm going to talk about the problem, which is hypoxemic encephalopathy, definitions, review of the studies that have been done and the results of them, and then talk about why we do it. Why are we trying to impose this therapeutic treatment on babies? And talk about prognosis prediction, review our experience here at DHMC in the ICN, and talk about a little bit about maybe where we might go with it. So as you all know, HIE is a fundamental problem, and it occurs in one to eight per thousand term births. About three per thousand are moderate to severe HIE, as opposed to some of the mild end of the spectrum. And 26 of a thousand in underdeveloped countries. So it's a big problem worldwide. It's a major cause of morbidity and mortality. Even after the institution of hypothermia, 15 to 40%, depending on which series you read, mortality. 15 to 40% of children with HIE die. Another 20 plus percent will have severe disabilities, cerebral palsy, spastic quadriparesis, cognitive impairments. And 10% will have moderate impairment in motor or cognitive function. So it's a, the majority of kids don't escape unscathed. It's associated with cerebral palsy, epilepsy, intellectual and learning disabilities. And traditionally, our treatment has only been supportive care. That's been all we could offer. Um, so hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is really a vascular insult. It's a stroke, basically. Either you have insufficient oxygen being delivered, or you have insufficient blood flow, or both. And as a result, the arteries supplying the brain are unable to do so, and there's basically a stroke. There's either an ischemic stroke or sometimes a hemorrhagic one. But it's a vascular problem that affects newborns. Um, and so it's a big problem because by the time we might want to intervene, the damage is already at least set in motion. Um, moderate to severe encephalopathy is diagnosed by a pH less than 7 on an arterial or a venous blood gas, low APGAR scores, and an abnormal examination, which is basically tone and power in a newborn. Um, a depressed level of consciousness, that's the encephalopathy part as well. Multi-system organ dysfunction, often respiratory depression, but cardiac, liver, kidney too, seizures, and exclusion of other causes. So it's kind of broadly defined as encephalopathy, and there can be other causes other than hypoxic ischemic. Mild is not associated with a high risk of motor or cognitive deficits or epilepsy. So the mild end of the spectrum is not so bad. 
Moderate leads to a very high risk of significant motor deficits, fine motor disability, memory learning impairments, visual or visual motor dysfunction, hyperactivity, and seizures, epilepsy. And severe is associated with a very high risk of death, mortality, up to 85% if you tease out that subgroup. Cerebral palsy, severe end of the spectrum. Sensory, hearing, vision impairment, and that's where you're getting down to the brainstem involvement. Epilepsy and intellectual disabilities. Clinically, we have scales that we use to gauge the depth of the encephalopathy or severity. And the main one that's used is SARNAT and SARNAT, um, mostly used and on the various uh, protocols that you'll see, that's the scheme that's been lifted and imposed on the exam part. So stage one, SARNAT and SARNAT, the baby tends to be hyper alert in sympathetic overdrive. So they're jittery, they've got big pupils, they're tachycardic, um, they may be hyperreflexic, and they have a normal or nearly normal EG. Most kids who get to stage one form of encephalopathy have a totally normal outcome. So that's the mild end of the spectrum. Stage two, clinically you'll see obtundation, hypotonia, multifocal seizures are common. The EEG will show period periodicity or discontinuity, um, poor state differentiation on the EEG. Reflexes are depressed but present. There's about 25% death involved in uh, stage two encephalopathy and severe disability runs quite high. Stage three, babies are stuporous and flaccid with an isoelectric or discontinuous birth suppression type EEG with no state differentiation. They have absent routine and complex reflexes, neonatal reflexes. Autonomic dysfunction is present. And there's an associated 76% death or severe disability with stage three encephalopathy. Um, MRI is another means by which we evaluate the situation. And there's different MRI scoring schemes that you'll see. If you review the literature on this, it's important to really Keep in mind that not everyone's talking about the same standardized approach or the same reading. Um, there's not often pediatric neuroradiologists reading these EEGs as often as it should be. And as a result, they're often misclassified or misread. But the most widely used system is Barkovich, who has really keyed in on the main areas of the brain that are affected by this vascular insult. And the patterns vary depending on the degree of insult and also the timing of it, whether it's acute, abrupt, or prolonged and chronic. Um, but basically, the parts to look for on the MRI are watershed areas in the vascular pattern, which is the kind of classic X pattern with anterior, frontal, and posterior parietal, occipital areas of ischemia. That's when the blood pressure is down too low to perfuse the brain. The basal ganglia and thalamus, so the deep central nuclei of the brain are often affected. And the posterior limb of the internal capsule, the PLIC, P-L-I-C. Those are the main three areas that people look for. Um, mostly in many studies, they've used the diffusion weighted images, which is the perfusion diffusion part of the MRI scan, and less the T2 weighted images and other weighted images. The T1 weighted image is probably the best in the newborn um, because T2, there's so much water in the newborn brain that a T2-weighted image is often kind of whited out by it. Um, the EEG, there are parameters we use when we look at the EEG, which is the third way we evaluate the central nervous system in the newborn encephalopathy. And that is 
really looking at the background, the continuity of the background, and the presence or absence of seizures, either clinical or subclinical. Um, so I would say, again, really be cautious when you read the literature. Look at the methods. Read what they did, because a lot of these studies are flawed by one or another aspect of how they evaluate the babies. So it remains that neuroprotection is a challenge, and hypothermia represents the first neuroprotective treatment available for babies. And of course, where it's going is combining hyperthermia with other interventions. People are talking about using xenon, erythropoietin, autologous stem cells, which is a trial going on at Duke in the past couple of years. Um, and these may improve outcomes. It's, they're currently under study. So right now, we're still just with therapeutic hypothermia. And this is just to show you, again, some MRIs. Um, this is anterior, posterior. Uh, left, it will always be on the right side in the MRI. But this is a normal brain. This is a T2-weighted image, so it's probably not done in a brand-new newborn. Um, this shows you the basal ganglia getting too dark, and that's a thing we look for is when the basal ganglia have this kind of, on T1, increased signal, on T2, decreased signal. Um, over on the third panel, you can see the um, posterior limb of the internal capsule, and this is um, just moderately abnormal, but involving the putamen and the thalamus. And then on the fourth one, you can see involvement of the perirolandic, uh, or this, yeah, the perirolandic sulcus. And sometimes you'll see up over the motor strip, basically, increased signal um, showing that there's been damage to that part of the brain as well. Uh, this is showing a T1-weighted image, and you can see, uh, again, a normal brain in a term newborn. The basal ganglia now have flipped their signal, and they're bright, and you can see that kind of what we call the ghostly glow of the basal ganglia. This scan in the middle frame also has really an auto-enhancement of the entire cortical surface and the ribbon, which shows diffuse, probably um, diffuse injury. Um, and then finally on the right is a moderately abnormal basal ganglia involvement, and you can see these bright areas. Um, and the myelination of the plic, the posterior limb of the internal capsule, which is right there, is present. Um, and then finally, these are diffusion-weighted images. These are more murky. They don't have the resolution that the standard T1 and T2-weighted images have, but these show a different picture. They show perfusion of the brain. So when there's an insult, the cells swell and die, and there will be basically impingement of movement between the cells. So the constantly flowing fluid that's running through your brain around all the cells and washing things away is stopped if the cells swell up and don't have any space between them for <laughs> fluid to flow through. So this takes advantage of that and will basically glow and be bright where there's lack of perfusion, <coughs> lack of blood flow, unimpeded blood flow. Um, so here you, on the left you have again a normal and it just is all kind of nice and gray standard in the middle severe area and you can see this brightness around the cortical ribbon as well as some in the posterior limb of the internal capsule which is quite bright and that means quite injured. And then this is that same photo of the kind of moderate injury involving the basal ganglia. Okay, so again, these are some pictures of our kids from here. And again, you can see this ghostly glow of the basal ganglia. And on here, this is a um, diffusion-weighted image on the right. 
And you can again see these involvements, particularly of the frontal in this case, as well as the basal ganglia. Um, here's just some more of our babies. And again, it rings true that the pictures can tell a lot about them. You can see this auto-enhancement of the subcortical, of the cortical ribbon. Um, and in this case, quite a bit of involvement of the hippocampi bilaterally down in the temporal lobes which is a different pattern from what we usually see, but we see a lot of variety in terms of the vascular patterns. As you know, only about 10% of us have a standard issue textbook circle of Willis and flow pattern. Um, here again is a, a severe injury pattern on a T1-weighted image, and the brain is largely homogeneous appearing without much internal definition. Uh, again, diffusion-weighted image, day of life number three, and we often look for the ADC map. The ADC map is apparent diffusion coefficient, and that basically is where these images are acquired from. So if you see brightness on the uh, diffusion weighted, which involves the T2 weighted image being superimposed, so brightness could, not, could be something other than impaired diffusion, you go to the ADC maps, and they're always on the study. And anything that's really dark on the ADC will correspond to a true finding because the ADC map won't show the other T2 image changes. So you can always correlate them if you see something and you think that's maybe not real, it's artifact. Um, here's the kind of EEG that unfortunately I see all too often coming out of the ICN, isoelectric flat, nothing going on. And these are um, one second sweeps on the EEG this is the left side of the brain with odd numbers, the right side with even numbers. The first letter over the lobe of the brain where the electrode's placed, that's our roadmap montage. And you, this is about a 10 second sweep and you can see no activity. That's a bad EEG to have, ever. Here's a burst suppression pattern and you can see again, a burst of activity about second four and then relatively flat the rest of the time. So the interburst interval is what matters when we see burst suppression on a baby. Um, and here's just to show you the type of thing that would be called a seizure. And you can see it here in the left frontal, F3, the shared electrode, these one per second rhythmic discharges marching along. And this is often what we see. Babies have one per second, two per second discharges. It's not a fast thing at all. Um, so Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is one part of neonatal encephalopathy. There's all sorts of other things, metabolic and other causes of it, um, that can make a baby seem under. But within HIE, the injury really evolves over days to weeks. It's not a momentary thing, and that's what gives us the opportunity to intervene and do some protection for the brain. Um, basically, cerebral blood flow brings oxygen and glucose to the brain, which you know. Uh, if you get a history of placental abruption, prolapse cord, or uterine rupture, they may be sentinel events and key you into the fact the baby's going to be in trouble. But most of the times we don't have any warning. The baby comes out and the ICN group has to deal with it. And you don't often know why they had the problem or when it started. Um, but in any case, the this is sort of the pathophysiology. Hypoxia leads to decreased cardiac output and cerebral blood flow. And circulation sort of pulls itself in and moves to the posterior part to protect the brainstem um, because that's where vital centers are 
and the anterior circulation is largely still undeveloped. It still hasn't happened yet. So the body biologically will pull things back to the brainstem to preserve it. And this leads to underperfusion of the cortex, watershed infarcts, and basal ganglia if it gets deep enough. Uh, with acute loss of flow, which can happen with some of these placental abruption or prolapse cord, the injury is more often seen to the basal ganglion thalamus, the deep nuclei, because a good, more than a third of the blood flow to the brain goes to that area. That's a critical vital center as well for blood flow. So these are the phases of cerebral injury. And again, it's where the smart people thought about, well, maybe we can have a window to try and help preserve some of the damage. Um, and the point here is that there's um, secondary events that occur from 6 to 72 hours. And the first insult that occurs, then there's reperfusion. And you have a one to six hour window during which the initial injury is sort of gathering force. And that's when we want to try to intervene is in the first six hours to prevent the secondary effects. Um, so this is a little bit repetitive. Primary energy failure is the problem. Uh, we're forced to switch to the baby's forced to switch to anaerobic metabolism. And this leads to decreased ATP in the cells, which causes intracellular accumulation of sodium, water, calcium. Acidosis ensues, and cell death will be triggered. Um, it's a, it releases an excitotoxicity cascade, depolarizing the neurons, which causes them to release glutamate, which is an excitotoxic neurotransmitter, which under control is fine. We need it. We use it all the time. But if it's out of control and being released in great amounts, it's actually deleterious. Um, and so there's there just a couple of cartoons to say on the primary phase. And I don't know if you can see it, but there's these little snowflakes. And these are where people have proposed possibly hypothermia might be able to exert an influence on things. Um, so there's proposed thoughts that it might actually help even in the primary phase, but usually people think it's helpful more in the secondary phase. Um, so as I said, there's this interval between the injury and the secondary, assuming the baby is resuscitated and is stabilized, um, and the secondary energy failure that occurs. And that really is something that follows only in the moderate to severe. The mild, it's probably that the baby recovers uneventfully most of the time. Obviously, it's a spectrum. And so some of the more severe mild is going to be at the upper <coughs> limits of mild to moderate. Um, but the point is that the, in the moderate to severe injury, 6 to 15 hours after the injury, you have all this cascade having its secondary effects and causing further insult to injury. Um, and seizures tend to occur during the secondary phase. Most babies don't start having their seizures after hypoxic injury to their brain. For the first few hours, it's usually several hours later that they start. Um, so this is reperfusion. And obviously, you get increased tissue oxygenation. But again, you've triggered something that will lead to cell death. Um, and some recognize even a tertiary phase months after the insult. So there's a lot of cleanup to do if you've had a moderate to severe injury. And there can be long-lasting, longer-term effects of a brain injury at birth that probably account in part for the acquired microcephaly and the other processes that continue even months later. Um, and then this is, I, I sort of 
put these arrows in here just to show that the hypothermia is thought to really help with the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways of programmed cell death because that's what the excitotoxic cascade will lead to. It'll activate death enzymes and enzymes that are programmed to put the cell down. Um, and so it's, it's an area we can hopefully, uh, in the second phase, affect. Um, so too many slides about the same thing, but I think I've made my point. This is really a summary slide of the potential mechanisms of neuroprotection that hypothermia might provide. And I bolded the two that have been really supported by good research and have been demonstrated, basically. This is where it has its effect on programmed cell death and on secondary inflammation. So it's secondary inflammation that leads to the further insult that we see. Um, so hypothermia was demonstrated in animal studies long before humans were subjected to it, shown to be neuroprotective. It inhibits the excitotoxic cascade by slowing brain metabolism, decreasing the need for energy, and inhibit to, inhibiting the inflammatory cascade. It seems that there's increasing neuroprotection with increasing hypothermia. So down to 28 degrees is actually better and we don't do that, but it's been animal studies been shown that if you get colder and colder, you can kind of put them in suspended animation and allow the process of cleanup and um, from the initial insult to occur. Um, so I'll just go through the studies that were done and laid the groundwork for this intervention. The cool cap study, this was 234 term infants with moderate or severe encephalopathy. They all had an abnormal amplitude integrated EEG, and I would say that's a big caveat for any of these studies. The cool cap involved putting a cool cap on, so they couldn't put an EEG on. And the EEG was just a strip electrode over the front. Anyone who's looked at babies and looked at baby EEGs will know that babies can have a seizure going on back here, and you'd never see it or know about it if you have your electrodes up here, because their brains aren't largely networked. So there's possibility of having a quadrant or an area affected and you won't see it. So this was using an abnormal amplitude integrated EEG, which probably means they were pretty bad off if that was abnormal. Um, the head was cooled to 34 or 35 degrees. Mild body cooling occurred as well. Their primary outcome in the study was death or severe disability at 18 months. So they were looking at, can we make an impact on that outcome? The conventionally treated group had 66, they reached the goal, 66% death or disability. The cooled group was 55% death or severe disability. So that showed about an 11% improvement over what would be expected without cooling. Um, there were no effects seen on infants with the most severe amplitude integrated EEG changes. It was beneficial only in those with less severe EEG changes. So that was just an early observation. In the NICHD randomized control trial, they used whole body hypothermia. They said you know, this head stuff is hard and not well tolerated. So they went with whole body hypothermia, 208 infants, randomized to 33.5 degrees for 72 hours or usual care. And the primary outcome again was death or severe disability. They weren't worried about any of the in-between. At the usual care group, 62% reached that endpoint, death or severe disability. 44% of the treated group met the primary outcome. So again, this was better, actually. So whole body hypothermia became the thing most people were thinking about using. 
Um, the TOBY study, total body hypothermia for neonatal encephalopathy, 325 infants with moderate or severe encephalopathy. And again, they used amplitude integrated EEG. Randomized to whole body hypothermia, 33 to 34 degrees, or usual care, primary outcome, same as the other studies. The usual care group, 53% met that primary outcome. The hypothermia, only 45%. So not as robust a response. Um, the survival without disabilities was at a much higher rate. They had a lower cerebral palsy rate and improved indices noted in the hypothermia group overall. So this was at the 18-month. So it's possible some of the more milder group was in this group, and it didn't show as much of a difference. Um, and that may be a limitation of the amplitude-integrated EEG. A Chinese study looked at 256 infants with therapeutic hypothermia versus usual care, Kind of the same parameters. They only cooled to 34 degrees, um, death or severe disability. And they had, of their group, 21% and 19%, 21% of the therapeutic hypothermia, 19% of the usual care, only had mild encephalopathy. So this is a milder group of kids. 41% of, of their usual care met the endpoint of death or disability, 31% of the hypothermia. So this was a less significantly injured group of babies. The European network looked at 129 infants, and they all received morphine. So there's another big controversy over whether you give these babies pain meds or not, because shivering and being cold is thought to be maybe not very comfortable. Um, again, same primary outcome. And they showed 51% in the hypothermia group meeting that outcome of death or severe disability, 83% of the normothermia group. So much better, more robust in terms of supporting hypothermia as a useful intervention. The ICE trial, which is what we based our protocol on at Dartmouth, looked at 221 infants. Cooling was initiated at a referring hospital so that intensive care neonatologists would be on the phone and say, start cooling them if they met the criteria. This was a little bit of a novel approach because everyone else was shipping them in and they had a harder time enrolling because they had to get that six-hour window. Um, this, uh, this kind of meant that we really got it, hammered it early in the, in the uh, course. Mild encephalopathy was diagnosed in 15% of the hypothermic group and 23% of the normo. So these, this included milder end, um, same primary outcomes. 51% of the hypothermia group met that primary outcome and 66% of the normothermia. So again, it was a pretty good split. Um, and then this is a multi-center randomized control trial in China that was using head cooling as opposed to whole total body hypothermia, published more recently. And they had 100 kids who got cooled and 94 in a control group. Um, and they had their parameters. They had to qualify by encephalopathy. Primary outcome was a combined endpoint of death and severe disability. So if you had either of those, you were in the outcome of that group. So they found that in 31% of the cool group and 49% of the control group, um, their mortality rate was 20 and 29% and severe disability 14 and 28% respectively. So what we do it for is to try and protect and preserve these brains. And I think the point that I'm in it for is to really figure out how we can help families understand the prognosis because that's what they all want to know when their baby's lying in, in the isolate in ICN, 
is what is she going to be like? What's going to happen? Um, so prediction of prognosis becomes a really important thing. Um, people have looked at this and they've said, okay, how good is the MRI? The TOBI trial looked at 40% of participants who had MRIs, not all of them had it, and they found a reduction in the basal ganglia or thalamic lesions, white matter, and plick, the posterior limb of the internal capsule, with an accuracy of prediction of death or severe disability, if those things were all there, in other words, involvement of those three areas, of 0.84 and 0.81 in the hypothermia and control group. So they said, yeah, it's really good at predicting prognosis, and hypothermia may or may not bear on the utility of the MRI to say what's going to happen. Um, the NICHD got MRIs in 65% of their babies and showed normal scans in 52% of the hypothermia and 35% of the control group, correlated with outcome at 18 months. So they said MRI reflects the utility of hypothermia, but it's still very useful for prognosis. Um, so this is the NICHD study, brain injury following trial of hypothermia. And again, these are the numbers. They could only look at 136 out of 208 um, because of the percent who had um, MRI. And 38 of 73, 52%, and 22 of 63, 35%, and these are the treated versus normal, um, had normal scans. And 51 of 136 died or had moderate to severe disability at 18 months. They met that endpoint. Um, brain injury pattern correlated with the outcome. So if you saw the MRI looking bad, it correlated beautifully with what you would see at 18 months in the clinic. And um, they used a scoring system of the MRI to assign babies points and say, okay, here's your likelihood. If you have this many points, you will have severe disability and, or not be alive. Um, there were no diffusion-weighted studies done on any of these, and diffusion-weighted imaging is really what we use primarily to really look at how the brain's doing. And their MRIs were done at 14 to 16 days out, so they were late, very late. Um, another study looked at a sub-study of the infants in the ICE trial at two years, and these were mild, or moderate to severe HIE with MRIs available. So they had 127 MRIs, some in the normothermia, some in the hypothermia group, done at a mean of six days. Overall, the hypothermia seemed to reduce MRI abnormalities if you take the kids to be the same set of injury to their brain. Um, but it didn't affect the predictive or prognostic value of the MRI, which was a nice thing to say, okay, the MRI definitely is helpful for us to be able to give a prognosis to these families. Um, so the MRI abnormalities predicted outcome, um, not altered by hypothermia. It was a major, a predictor of major disability or death with a sensitivity of up to 89% and a negative predictive value of 93%. So pretty good when you think about the interventions we do. Um, certain anatomic areas emerged as most predictive and least affected by hypothermia, and that's the basal ganglia and the plick, the posterior limb of the internal capsule. Um, they were done earlier than in the TOPI study, but it seemed to still work. It seemed to still hold that if you did an MRI at six days, you could still see the same picture and have accuracy of prediction. So then a group from Children's Hospital Boston said, well, what about really early, early MRI versus late so that we can tell parents, you know, it's not a good thing, what's going on? And so they did 
took 12 asphyxiated hypothermic treated neonates and did MRIs. They planned to do MRIs on day one, day two, day three, um, then at two weeks or eight days to two weeks, and again at one month. And they said, we're going to really figure this out. Um, four developed a brain injury visible on early MRI, the day one, they could detect it. And eight didn't develop brain injury, although they speculate once they did the two, three, or four, fourth one, they could see injury, and they went back to the first one and said, yeah, it's subtle, but we can see it in most cases. Um, two had unexpected findings on early MRI, leading to termination of hypothermia. There were two hemorrhages they identified. So they basically concluded early MRI can reliably identify irreversible injury, but they only had 14 kids, so they said we really need to study it more. A few of their kids died as well. So they, they basically found day of life one was to exclude prior injury or to exclude something that would say, don't cool this baby. So they were kind of advocating with their rate of two out of the 14 having hemorrhage, which could, there's a coagulopathy possible with cooling, um, would be a contraindication. Day of life two, three was the peak time for the DWI and spectroscopy abnormalities. And eight to 13 in one month really was good to use the T2 weighted images because the brain, though still watery, has a little more resolution at that point. Um, they also did a focused neurologic exam at discharge, day of life 10, two, six, 12 months of age to track the development of these kids. Um, so basically they managed to cool them at 4.4 hours. So they had early cooling. Three patients died. These were pretty severe. Um, four had a moderately abnormal EEG, and they had no significant MRI findings early or late. Eight had a severely abnormal EEG, and there were some who died, obviously, and most of them had an injury pattern visible on early MRIs. Um, so then people have said, well, what about early MRI and necessity of repeating MRI in non-cooled and cooled infants. Um, it, and how early should we be doing it? And do we have to do it day one, two, three, six? Um, so basically, late MRI reliably predicts long-term outcome. That's been well established from all of the studies. But it's unknown if the three to six day early, defined as early by these authors, scan, does as well. So they compared 89-term neonates with neonatal encephalopathy, 48%, about half of which had been cooled. And they found that the pattern and extent of lesions agreed in cooled and non-cooled. They were wondering if maybe cooling the baby would throw you off on the MRI. Um, and basically, they found that mostly the early MRI predict the pattern and extent of injury quite well. There were a few babies who it changed, who had injury patterns, and it got a little better or it got a little worse, mostly it got a little worse with a late scan. Um, but it was not significant in terms of predicting outcome and prognosis. So they basically said, who should get a follow-up late scan? Um, any baby who doesn't improve in its clinical exam for the first week or two and persists in having an encephalopathy picture, you could, should consider it and any baby who had hypoglycemia. They, their group had a number with hypoglycemia, and the MRI shows a different pattern of injury with hypoglycemia, affecting more of the posterior circulation and elements, and um, parts of the thalamus and basal ganglia. 
So they recommended if there was neonatal hypoglycemia, you consider doing a later scan to look for development extent of lesions. They all got worse. They didn't get better. Um, and then EEG. So there's a controversy over whether we should do a continuous full array or amplitude integrated. Um, it's really important when you read the literature, particularly if they're using any part of it to refer to EEG, because there's a lot that can be missed with amplitude integrated. Um, and so it varies from a baseline 30-minute assessment with a four-lead strip to full array EEG. And we use full array at this center for 72 hours um, or more. There was a published paper by Nash in Neurology looking at 41 newborns with continuous video EEG. And he started to entertain the possibility that EEG might be telling us something more that we could be honing into prognostically. Um, if you had a normal EEG at onset of your hypothermia, you had a great outcome. You had a pretty good prognosis, um, 100%. So it was very good for detecting the kids who really didn't have much of an injury. Um, if you had burst suppression or low voltage, that became prognostic after 24 hours. And by the end of day three, it was 100% specific for a bad outcome. So teasing out the groups at both ends of the spectrum. Um, discontinuous pattern was not associated necessarily with an adverse outcome in most patients. So that's important because the baby's response, the brain's response to injury is often to hearken back to an earlier part of development and discontinuity is part of the developing infant preterm baby. So you'll basically have activity and then relative flatness, activity, relative flatness. Um, so that was not associated with a bad outcome in most patients. Um, seizures occurred in 34% and were detected on the continuous array. 10% had status epilepticus. And they were clinical in about 57%, but subclinical in 43%. So there's a lot of activity going on that you don't see on the surface in these babies. And there's a big question, what added injury? Does a seizure cause? A subclinical seizure may well be being metabolically demanding for a baby that doesn't have a lot of reserve. Um, so EEG was correlated, and there's been great studies to correlate it with the MRI to say, okay, if you've got a really bad EEG, we predict you're going to have a bad MRI, and you do most of the time. Um, and it's, it becomes prognostic mid-cooling and beyond. It's not okay in the first 24 hours because all bets are off what the EEG may be showing you other than seizures. Um, so it's, again, scoring systems cropped up, and you score the EEG, the neonatal EEG, according to its background, state regulation, continuity, amplitude, these features of the EEG. And um, burst suppression and low voltage undifferentiated is pretty much the worst of the worst, always associated with a bad outcome if it persists past about two days. Um, and the evolution of the EEG is very important. We've seen quite a number of babies who it's dramatic how they'll recover from their injury and the EEG recovers in turn. And that can be wonderful for parents to know that things aren't looking so bad. Um, or on the other side, that they are looking really bad. Um, so the role of EEG background activity, seizure burden, and MRI in predicting neurodevelopmental outcome. This is a group from the Netherlands who stole our data, actually, <laughs> from a meeting. Um, but it's okay. We're going to publish it anyway. 
Uh, they evaluated 26 infants with 72 hours of video EG MRI within two weeks, neurodevelopmental assessment at two years, and they included the seizure burden. It actually was a study done, if you go to the bottom of the slide, on infants who were enrolled in a study to look at neonatal seizures, and they were receiving phenobarb and bumetanide, which is a diuretic being used, trialed in kids with neonatal seizures. The trial was stopped in Boston because it wasn't effective, and this is just their publishing something a few years later. Um, in any case, they looked at a bunch of babies, and they found a significant association with the EG background at 36 and 48 hours with neurodevelopmental outcome and with severity of brain injury on MRI. So they're saying, yes, EG can be used as a nicely predictive prognosticator. Um, the positive predictive value of EEG for abnormal outcome was 100% at 36 and 48 hours. So it was pretty good as a test. And the negative predictive value was 75% at 36 hours, 69% at 48 hours. So that would be saying we said it was um, abnormal, but it was actually normal. Uh, positive predictive value of MRI was 100%, and this was done, you know, six days out or within two weeks, and negative predictive value 85%. The positive predictive value of seizure burden was 78%. So again, if you have seizures during your course of neonatal encephalopathy, it's not a good thing. Um, it certainly is associated with its own separate ability to cause injury, damage, and poor outcome. Um, so then another group studied this, therapeutic hypothermia electrographic seizures, like what's the value of the seizures? And they found that the lower seizure burden was seen in hypothermic treated neonates, but only in the moderate group. So it seemed to have a protective effect in the moderate group, but not in the severe group. So the severe group, highly associated with seizures despite hypothermia. Um, so they basically said, and it followed through to the MRI, there was lower brain injury in the mild to moderate, but not in the severe injury group. So again, from multiple directions we find this. Um, so seizures in neonates with, were independently associated with worse brain injury and worse developmental outcome. Um, and that is derived from a lot of fancy statistics that I really don't understand, but they were bad. Um, so in the no hypothermia group, 11 of 18, their control group, you know, sort of like, how is this ethical, were born before it was offered, and they used them. Um, and 7 of 18 were outside the six-hour window, so they couldn't receive hypothermia. Um, they did note that the video EG tended to run longer in the hypothermia group. We tend to have a, te uh, we don't want to give it up because we're seeing the brain and how it's working, so um, for what it's worth. So electrographic seizures were seen in 37% of the hypothermic, 88% of the usual care. Um, status occurred quite frequently in both groups. Um, and again, that's the severe end of the spectrum, so it doesn't seem to do much for them. Uh, so when assessed by MRI, again, that correlated with this seizure burden. So then what about outcome? Uh, the COOLCAP study found in the 18 to 22 month outcomes that they found a very good predictive for seven or eight years old. So if you see these babies back and you follow their development around 18 to 24 months, you can pretty much say where things are going to go from their early life brain injury. Um, the NICHD study found primary outcome of death or IQ less than 70 in 47% of the hypothermic, 62% of the control, 
Um, and they kind of looked at that as their only endpoint, whether you lived or died and how disabled you were. Um, so turning a little bit before paper and scissors, if paper wins, we try therapeutic hypothermia. This was the Dartmouth experience. Um, and, you know, basically we've been looking at this for a number of years and trying to correlate what we can outcome with the intervention. So we've had more than 45 babies since mid-2008, and we continue to accrue them. I think it's become, in the ICN, a very standard and smooth operation at this point, inducing hypothermia. All the babies have undergone video EG monitoring, continuous. All who survived had at least one MRI, and all have had serial neurologic examinations. Many have been followed up, most have been followed up through the ICN TLC clinic and seen Dr. Sandloud and gotten developmental assessments. So it's been a wonderful, um, wonderful journey. Variable length of follow-up, one month to nine years. So here's what we found on video EG. We had no seizures in 23 of 45 infants, so about half, and seizures in 19 of 45. Within the seizure group, 7 of 45 had status epilepticus, and you all now know that those are in the, in the bad end of the spectrum. Uh, whoops. Uh, clinical, they were clinical in 16 of 45, and they were electrographic in 19 of 45, and 10 of the 19 had electrographic only, but others had both, electrographic and clinical seizures. And we often see that we'll load these babies with phenobarb and nobody sees another seizure, but electrically we continue to see seizures going on. Um, and no seizure does not mean normal EG, okay. So in the EG background on day three, we found totally normal in 15%, abnormal but improving in 54%, so recovery going on, and abnormal or worsening in 36%. Um, four children died, so they didn't have an EEG at day three. And MRI, we found normal MRIs in 34%, mildly abnormal, and that's variable in its definition in 32%, and severely abnormal in two, uh, 32%. Interestingly, when we did MRIs, we did find a couple kids who had large infarcts on one side of the brain no hemorrhages, a few with mild subdurals, but um, these are kids who probably shouldn't have been cooled. Their encephalopathy was not due necessarily to hypoxic ischemic injury as opposed to a big stroke um, in the newborn period. And they can mimic, certainly, encephalopathy. Um, developmentally, uh, we have about 36% of our kids who have a really good, normal outcome. We have mild disabilities in about 34 percent, so a third, a third, a third, and really bad in about 12 percent. Um, and again, we had several kids who died and a couple who have died a little later, um, not just right away. And then unknown or lost to follow-up. This is the surprising thing when you do a chart review, how many people move out of the area or just don't come back. So I don't know how they fared, but I would assume this is a sample at least of of the kids. Um, and then this is again just a normal MRI. We've seen these are our children from here. Um, here's a severe injury pattern and you can see on a diffusion weighted image it doesn't take much to say that's a little too bright. 
um, even if you window it down. And here again are severe injuries where the cortical ribbon is affected pretty much around the block. Um, the corpus callosum, the posterior part of it, is often extremely bright in these kids, reflecting the hypoxic ischemic injury. Um, EEGs from here, here's a nice seizure going on. Um, and so basically outcome, when we look at EEG, we find that day of life two slash three can really predict the MRI and can really predict the long-term outcome. So basically if you're not in a good EEG category and not in a good MRI category, um, these were all congruent except for one patient. So it was pretty tightly associated with the MRI, which was done anytime after day three, oftentimes four, five, or six. We didn't follow a, you know, the MRI says, no, you can't send the baby down right now. Um, anyway, and the one patient who was not congruent, EEG had minimal improvement, but the MRI and exam were very abnormal. So the questions that, were re that we are left with is who should get cooled, who benefits? Um, if the early EEG is normal, it may not really be needed. It may be just taking a little, but not very big risk with the baby that you might get a coagulopathy, you might get an iatrogenic problem for an intervention that they may not really need or benefit from. If the EG is abnormal at day of life two, going on three, and the MRI is abnormal at day of life three, I think those babies we should really re consider redirecting care because they have a really bleak outlook they aren't going to do well, and we've had enough experience here and in other centers to identify that group of patients. So at the two ends of the spectrum, I think we should begin looking at our protocol and questioning whether we should just barrel on using this indiscriminately. Um, status epilepticus is always associated with a poor prognosis. So I think the conclusion from all of this is that cooling doesn't really help the severe hypoxic ischemic children. They don't benefit from it sufficiently to warrant doing it. Um, so just to be bold, I really wonder whether parents should receive prenatal counseling and consider an advanced directive, because in my experience working in the intensive care nursery, it's the worst time in the world for parents to have to make a decision. They've got a beautiful baby lying there, ventilated, who looks completely normal, and they are in shock. The mother's just delivered, and they can't make sense out of anything you tell them enough to make an informed choice about things. And mostly, no one wants to say, let go. Um, on the other hand, I've also been in the clinic for 20 plus years and seen many of these babies come back and seen the high divorce rate and seen the misery that these families, many of them, go through trying to take care of these children. Um, so I think we have to always, as providers, consider the welfare of the patient first and figure how we want to approach this big problem. Um, but I think we are able to perhaps generate a predicting model that would take bits of data that we get and be able to update parents as to what the situation is and at least maybe not hit them day three or four with the, the talk or something that says, you know, it's really bleak and things aren't going to go well. Um, to give them a chance. So I think we should tease out the mild from the moderate to severe on day of life number one, and tease out the moderate from severe on day of life number two using MRI and EEG. 
uh, exam correlations, and try and generate a prognosis for parents. Um, it's important to really look at the MRI and EEG interpretations because they're critical bits of data and they're often not interpreted correctly. Again, we don't have a pediatric neuroradiologist at this institution and could sorely use one for the subtleties and the training really required to interpret an MRI in a newborn. Um, and so, again, there's a subgroup of neonatal seizures and epilepsy risk, which we also need to key into. Um, so we'll take the quiz, and then I'll take questions for a couple of minutes. Um, cooling infants has decreased mortality in hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy by more than 50%. False. I saw you shake your head no. <laughs> cooling has been shown to be effective only if instituted by or before six hours of onset of encephalopathy. Well, that's really all we've studied. There are some centers that are going seven, eight hours, but um, that's really all that's been studied. So it has been shown to be effective only if instituted early. Cooling to 35 is the same as 30. False. It's really going down that really helps. Cooling more than 72 hours may hurt the infant. Yeah, I've been showing Which? There are, there are humans who have gone down to 31, 32, but not below that. So I put that as, you're right. Technically, you can't answer that. You could put unknown, put a U as your answer. Um, cooling longer than 72 hours may be deleterious to the infant. Again, there's another unknown. Um, there are people who are saying, why don't we cool for five, six days? Um, and the EG is highly predictive outcome at A, 24, B, 48, C, 72 hours, or equally on all days. And most cooling studies have used early, first two days, over late, greater than seven days. So now you know everything there is to know about it. Um, and that's it. So thank you very much. Yes? Great presentation great both the progress and the limits. And as you know, I think probably the biggest battleground is mildly affected kids. Yeah. We've been making a great effort around the region to increase people's vigilance around the baby with not quite such bad depression, but you know, monitoring the physical exam early with an eye towards sending them here where they might then get considered for cooling. But it's worrisome, right? Because very little of our data is in the mild. Very yeah, there's, the there's very little data in the mild. And again, they may um, either not benefit at all, or they may benefit um, to even minimize the mild to normal. But again, if you expand the population you're treating, the rare, you know, many people advocate cooling everybody because they say, right. look, there's no Problems, but again, well, there can be, yeah, as you know, and, and the it's more patients you do, the more likely you are to see exactly, the yeah. I think applying it intelligently needs to be data driven, and getting that data when the studies have already been done, and no one's going to price support some giant new one. Um, so, we have to internally revise our protocol and say, okay, how are we doing? Look at our experience, yeah. Shalene, you're so quiet today. <laughs> well, did you already get your question out? No, I think the problem is that there's the, that in the pediatric ICU population, 
um, there's a lot, a lot more controversy about cooling. And part of the problem is that some of our mechanisms of injury are so different. But even when you take post-cardiac arrest, which is a, a good model for hypoxia and ischemia, um, you, you don't have that captive audience where you ring a doorbell in order to get them. So it's very hard to get them quickly. And the FAPCA study, which is the huge study that looked at cooling after um, cardiac arrest did not show a significant benefit. Um, they, we've discussed it, they also were looking for a 20% benefit in mortality or severe neurologic outcome, and they were 80% powered for that. And what they, but they didn't find that. So, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's 12%, you have no idea whether that's significant or not, but it, it's meaningful, but does that, the study wasn't designed to look for 20%, so we don't know what that really means. Um, but right now, all those studies have been negative, and the studies in traumatic brain injury have actually been shown to be harmful, right? So that was stopped, not just for fertility, but for um, for worse outcomes in the, in the cooling group. So um, the, the studies that were done in adults with um, post-arrest have been a, hard to replicate with positive outcomes, and B, been criticized because what they really compared was hyperthermia with hypothermia. And we all know fever is bad. So it's it's a different population, it's a different world, and it's a different um, ability to cool quickly. So. Hi, um, I'm in primary care, and I'm just curious, is how many NICUs or level two nurseries are doing this, or is this just a study? Well, there was a Cochrane review published in 2013, I think, and basically it's been established as standard of care. So I would imagine most NICUs, at least at a tertiary care center, are doing it. It's become pretty routine. We started early here at Dartmouth because it had just come out, and in 2008 there weren't very many nurses doing it. Um, but Bill Edwards had reviewed the literature and thought, we should be doing this. Um, and so we went by protocol driven. We treated it like a study almost at the beginning. Um, I don't think anyone's doing the cool cap. What they found with the cool cap in the post analysis was that it worked really well to preserve the cortex, the cortical surface, but the cold didn't penetrate to the basal ganglia, which are one of the main areas of concern. And so the basal ganglia had the same injury and the cortex was preserved and it made for a really not great look in the child who would have sort of a choreoathetotic CP more. All right, and last question, Dr. Lennon. That was great. Uh, I couldn't quite tell if you have a sense that patients who would have died for hypothermia are now alive awful. Yeah, that's the, the severe end group. And a small percentage, 10% of them maybe um, in our series died, but the rest survived and have a really poor, bleak outlook. There's spastic quadriplegia, G-tube, VED, microcephaly, seizures, most of them, and they are the ones who occupy wheelchairs and don't walk or talk. So that end of the spectrum is all too prevalent in the because we are able to keep people alive quite well and get them through their brain injury. But, you know, the, the long-term outcome for them neurologically is not, I think, desirable. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.